Now, uh, this morning, we are discussing the subject of fear, okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to look at fear under two headings, okay? We're going to look at it under two headings. We're looking at fear from two different angles, if you can put those two truths up. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the struggle of fear, and then after we look at the struggle of fear, we are going to conclude by looking at the solution for fear, okay? So we're going to look at the struggle of it, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the solution for it. Okay, so let's begin by looking at the struggle of fear. And to do that, I want to reread verse 18 for us, since that's where we're going to be this morning. In verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so the first truth that we have to look at today, the first truth that we have to meditate on this morning is we have to look at and understand the struggle of fear. Because here's the thing, if we don't take time to understand our struggle with fear, then when I give you a solution for fear, it won't mean anything, right? So what I want to do for the first few minutes is I want to convince you of our struggle before I point you to the solution. And here's how we're going to do it. We are going to try to understand this struggle by asking and answering three questions. The first question that we're going to ask this morning about our struggle with fear is we are going to ask, what is fear? What is it? The second question that we're going to ask and answer is, where does it come from? Where does it come from? And the third question we're going to ask and answer is, how do we deal with it? Okay? So in order for us to understand our struggle with fear, we have to figure out what is it, where does it come from, and how do we deal with it? So let's begin with the first question. If we're ever going to get an understanding of our struggle with fear, we need to understand what fear is. Now, in this passage, John uses the word fear in one verse. He uses the word fear four times. Four times in one verse, John uses the word fear, okay? Now, in the Bible, there are two types of fears. There is a fear that God encourages and tells us to display, and there's, another, there's a fear that God discourages and tells us not to display. The fear that God encourages in the Bible is the fear of God is a fear of him. And the fear of God, here's what the fear of God is. The fear of God is not terrified fear or scared fear. It is a reverential fear. It is a respectful fear. It is the type of fear that a son has for his father. That's the type of fear that that God wants us to have. That's the fear of God. Now, the fear that God doesn't want us to have is the fear of everything else. That's the fear that the Bible says we shouldn't have under any circumstances. Now, the the fear of everything else is the fear that John is talking about here in this passage. And the Greek word for that word fear there is phobos. And that's actually where we get the word phobia from, okay? That's That's the fear that he's talking about. The word is phobos, and we get the word phobia from there. That's the fear that God does not want us to have. And according to the word studies that I looked at this week, the word fear, the word phobos in Greek, it means a distress, a, a state of distress or panic that comes about when we are threatened. Okay? A state of distress and or panic that comes about when we are threatened. And here's what's so interesting about the word study. In the word study, what the commentators say is that the threats can be real or imaginary. They don't have to be real threats. So the person who's scared of imaginary threats is just as scared physically, emotionally, psychologically, is just as scared and just as terrified as the person who's dealing with real threats. So it doesn't matter what, who the threats are. Well, fear is not, the, it's not the threats, it's how we respond to those threats that, that makes it phobos, that makes it the fear that the Bible is talking to us about. And so that's the biblical definition of fear. 
Now, the reason why we have to have a definition for fear, the reason why a definition is so important is because what a lot of us do, since we don't have a biblical definition, what we do is a lot of, a lot of us, and I would actually argue all of us, Every single person in here struggles with fear to one extent or another. But because we don't have a biblical definition of it, what we do is we relabel it, we, we redefine it. And so once we re- relabel it, we can rationalize it. So every person here is struggling with fear. The question is not whether you struggle with fear or not. The question is, are you struggling with it the right way? Are you handling it the right way? And a lot of us don't handle it the right way because we have the wrong definition. We have redefined it, we have relabeled it, and as a result, we are not dealing with it appropriately. So what some people say is, they don't say I'm fearful. What people, some people say is, I'm not fearful, I'm just very careful. I'm not fearful, I'm just very prudent. Oh, I'm not fearful, I'm just a pessimistic visionary. And that's what we do. We, we relabel it, and then what happens is when we relabel it, then we can rationalize it, and we could just explain it away, right? And so what people say is, oh, I can't help being fearful. It's just my personality. It's just the way I'm wired. It's just the way I was raised. Or one of my favorite excuses that we use when it comes to fear is if you were in my shoes, you would be fearful too. If you had to deal with my spouse, if you had to deal with my, sh- my kids, if you had to deal with my job, if you had to deal with my disease, you would be fearful too. And one of the things that bothers me, and we do this often, and I'm guilty of this as well, is we look at what John says in this passage, and John says, do not fear, right? He talks about fear and fear being removed and expelled. And one of the things that we do with our fear, right, is we look at the Bible and we say things like, oh, well, of course John can say that to those Christians because in the first century, those people aren't real people. Biblical people aren't even real people, right? They're not real. They're not struggling with real issues, not like me. So, of course, John can say that because it's the first century, but they're not, they don't know what, it, what, it, what it's really like to struggle. But here's the thing. The people who John was writing to, the Bible says that he's writing to, according to scholars, that, that he was writing to churches in Ephesus. And here's what the Bible tells us that these churches in Ephesus were, were in danger of persecution, not only from false teachers, but from the government that they, they were in. And so some of you are like, oh, the reason why I struggle with fear is because of our government. No one's ever had a government as bad as our government. No one's ever had a leader as bad as our leader. Caesar is, is 10 times worse than any president we've ever had. To the point where it, it, it gets to a point in the first century where Christians are so persecuted that they're being thrown into the Colosseum and being eaten alive by lions. That's problems. All the first world problems that we freak out about, that's a problem. And for the mothers here who are like, well, no one loves my kids the way I love. That's why I'm so fearful. In those days, most kids weren't even named until they were out of infancy because most of them would die before they got out of it. You wouldn't even name your child because you were so sure it would die. So when you're sitting here and you're, and you're worried about your child's health, we have no idea what health, bad health issues are compared to what those people were going through. There, were, there was mothers who were worried about their kids. There were husbands who were worried about their jobs. There were people who were worried about the government. They were real people who struggled with real fear. And John is telling them what he's telling us, which is perfect love cast out fear. Fear is not an option if you're a Christian. Okay? So the first question that we, we've answered, if we're going to understand this struggle with fear, is what is fear? The second question that we have to answer if we're going to understand our struggle is where does fear come from? Where do our fears come from? And according to scripture, there are three categories of fears. There are three categories. The first category of fears are spiritual fears, spiritual fears. The second category of fears are relational fears, relational fears. And the third category of fears are situational fears, spiritual, relational, situational, okay? We're going to look at each one. 
The first category, the first place that fear can come from is from our spiritual life, from our spiritual life. It's our, our vertical life, okay? And one of the examples of spiritual fear is actually mentioned in the Bible because he says in verse 18, he says, uh, per, but perfect love drives out fear. And then he says, because fear has to do with punishment. So what he gives us there is a, an example of a spiritual fear. He says that the reason why all of us struggle with fear, at the most basic level, the reason why all of us struggle with fear is because deep down inside, we're scared that God's still going to punish us. Deep down inside, we were scared that we're not really forgiven yet. And so the root of every single one of our fears is a fear of punishment. There's this fear that, did Jesus really forgive me? Am I really accepted? Am I really secure? It's that orphan behavior instead of a beloved child behavior, okay? That's the, so that's an example of spiritual fear, that first category, the, the, the fear of punishment. Another example of spiritual fear is the fear that God doesn't care for you. God doesn't care. Another, another example of spiritual fear is God's not powerful enough to deal with what I'm going through. Right? Another example of, of this first category of fears, spiritual fears, are idolatrous fears. Here, here's what I mean by idolatrous fears. An idol is anything that you put in God's place. An idol is anything that you love, worship, or rely on more than Jesus. That's what an idol is according to Scripture, right? Our fears, an example of spiritual fears, is our idolatrous fears. And here's what I mean by that. And I want you to, if you're taking notes, make sure you write this down. The areas of your life where you fear the most are the areas of your life where you trust the least. Okay? The areas of your life where you fear the most are the areas of your life where you trust the least. It's where you tell God, no, 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 you can't do anything about this. I got this. That's how, that's how it works. It's idolatry. It's idolatrous in nature. Okay? Look at this quote from Dr. Ed Welsh. And actually, before I read the, the quote, if you want to read a book on this subject, if you want to read a book that deals with fear and how to, how to handle it in a gospel-centered way, Ed Welsh's book, Dr. Ed Welsh's book on running scared, it's called Running Scared. It's excellent. Here's what he says in the book. Listen to this. He says, there is a close connection between what we fear and what we think we need. Listen to this. If we need comfort, we will fear physical pain. If we need approval from others, we will fear being criticized. If we need love, we will fear rejection. If we need admiration for our attractiveness, we will fear getting fat. And whatever you need, listen to this, whatever you need is a mere stone's throw from what you fear. And then he says, if we need what people can give us, they are in control and we will fear them. If we need what money can give us, we will, uh, we will notice rising insecurities whenever we do the bills. Then he says, our fears point to what we really care about. What do these fears say I trust in? What do my fears say I love? Your fears will always reveal your allegiances. Your fears will always reveal what you actually worship. So up here, you can think all the right theology, but your fears will always reveal what you actually believe, always. See, our, our fears speak to us. The question is, do we listen? And listen, fears, your fears are a wonderful gauge, but a horrible guide, okay? You, you should never let your fears guide you, but you should let your fears be a gauge on where you are with God. They will always reveal where you are. It's one of the easiest ways to figure out what you're actually worshiping. Our fears point to what we really care about. 
That's what fears do. And look at this quote from St. Augustine. He says, fear is the response of the human heart when it's one thing is threatened. So whatever your one thing is, it's work or it's your spouse or it's your kids or it's a romantic relationship or, or, or fill in the blank, whatever your one thing is, education, success, fear is what happens when your one thing is threatened. When that thing that you replace God with is threatened. When your real God is threatened. Okay? So if you struggle with fear in any way, shape, or form this morning, with any way, shape, or form this morning, what it means is you're worshiping something smaller than Jesus. And whatever that thing is, is being threatened. Because Jesus can't be threatened. So if Jesus is in the right place, you won't struggle with fear because he can't be threatened. But whatever it is that's in God's place is threatened, and that's why you're scared. That's why I'm scared. That's where fear comes from. Okay? So the first category, the first place that fear can come from is, from, uh, is the spiritual category. There are spiritual fears. The second type of fear are relational fears, relational fears. Now, now, if the first category has to do with our vertical relationship with God, this second category has to do with our horizontal relationship with other people. So we have relational fears. The Bible calls our relational fears the, the, our relational fears the fear of man. We, we have a fear of man. The fear of man is when your ultimate value, significance, and security come from a person instead of Jesus. That's what the fear of man is, okay? And every single one of us, to one degree or another, struggles with the fear of man. Examples of the fear of man are, if, if, you, if you struggle, if you have a fear of being alone, so you look at your, you've looked at your life and there's never been a time when you're not dating someone. There's never been a time when you're not pursuing someone or being pursued by someone. There's never been a time where you just can't sit in silence. You always have to be around people or on Facebook or texting someone. You know what that means? You have a fear of men. You have a fear of being alone. That's a relational fear. That's a relational fear. Another example of relational fears is the fear of being forgotten. Some of us scared that one day, well, some of us are scared that one day we're going to die and no one's going to remember us. And it's going to be like we never existed. That's a relational fear. So relational fears are just, are, are all over the place, are all over the place. Another example of relational fear is the need to be accepted. So if I feel rejected, my fear of rejection, I have that fear. I have my, one of my idols, one of my gods is the need for approval. And so my devil, my hell is rejection, right? When I replace Jesus with approval, then I replace hell with rejection. I struggle with that. So that's an example of relational fears. So we have spiritual fears, we have relational fears, and the last category of fear is situational fears, situational fears. Now, situational fears are, are pretty much self-explanatory, right? It's the, the fear of death, for example, or the fear of a particular danger, a car accident, a plane crash, someone getting sick, right? Those are all situational in nature. But you know what other unexpected examples of situational fear is? There are some people who are so situational in their fear that they actually are afraid of, about being afraid. There's people here this morning who are worried about being worried. There's people here this morning who are terrified about being terrified. And you're walking with Jesus and you're like, why am I so scared? So now I'm scared about being scared. That's situational fear, right? That's situational fear. And one of the things that, that any a psychiatrist or counselor will tell you is that whenever we are faced with a situational fear, there's, there's three ways we can respond. There's fight, there's flight, and there's freeze. Okay? You can fight it. You can run away from it, or you can just stay frozen in it. Those are the three responses. The other day, um, uh, Carol, who's our admin here, her and I were talking about this. I told her I was going to be preaching on fear. 
And she's like, you know what's so interesting to me about fear? And then she brought up those three responses, you know, fight, flight, fear, froze, freeze, right? And uh, she's like, I have a friend of mine, and, and, and she's, the, she's like the one person I've ever met who anytime she is faced with a situational fear, she's like, she, she responds with fighting like no one I've ever seen before. And I was like, oh, really? Give me an example. And she's like, well, one day uh, my friend was dog sitting, this little cute dog, and she's like, I went to visit her at the house. And so we decided to take a walk to walk the dog in the community. She's like, and as we were walking, we were going down this sidewalk, and out of nowhere, this big, huge rabbit dog comes out, this big dog that had no chain on, right? He comes out and starts running right at us. And she's like, it literally took about three seconds from when the dog showed up to when he was on top of us. And she's like, my initial response was to like cower next to her and hold on to her. And, I, and I'm like, what did she do? She's like, she, she threw me off, ran up to the dog, grabbed it by the neck, and pinned it to the ground. <laughs> she literally held the dog while it was whimpering. And then she let it go, and the dog ran away scared because she, she was so terrified by her, right? And I'm like, who does that? Like, who, who is this person, right? Like, who does that? Now, here's the thing. I've never had an experience like that with a dog, but, but I actually know how I would respond in a situation like that because I've actually been in a situation like that, all right? A few years ago, uh, my wife and I were, uh, were, were at our apartment in Bloomingdale. We lived in Bloomingdale when we first moved back to Illinois. And uh, um, we, we <laughs> were at our apartment, and we're walking from the car into the house, right? And so I don't know what we were doing that night, whatever. We were doing something, but it was, it was, it was, it was, it was dark out, okay? And it was really dark out, okay? It was really dark. It was a very scary night, the darkest of nights, okay? Um, we were in the ghetto side of Bloomingdale, okay, because Bloomingdale is really hood, okay? And... Uh, so we're walking, and, and just to make things worse, my wife is pregnant at the time, okay? So she's pregnant, and uh, I help her get out of the car, and I have her arm in my arm. And so we're walking like this, walking up. And then all of a sudden, this creature comes out from behind the cars, because all the cars were parked uh, uh, like in a normal parking lot. A creature comes out from behind one of the cars. It was this big, massive, furry, yellow-eyed creature. It just pops up. It looked like a mountain lion, right? So what do I do? I see it, and you would think my default thing would be to jump in front of my wife. I literally do this. I grab her arm, and I throw it, and I run away like this. <laughs> I was gone. I was gone, all right? I was at the end of the block by the time I realized what was going on, right? So I go all the end of the block, and then I stop running. I'm like, oh, I just left my pregnant wife by herself. So I start walking back, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to say. Like, how do you explain this? How do I get out of this? I didn't even know what it was. It wasn't as bad as what, it, what I thought it was. I'm like, Lily, so what was it, you know? A mountain lion? She's like, well, it was like a cat, like this big, okay? <laughs> and she's like, and besides that, you left me. And I'm like, what do you mean? I didn't leave you. Like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, you left. Like, you literally threw my hand out and you sprinted away. And I'm like, babe, it's all about perspective, right? Like, it's all about how you look at it. I didn't, I didn't really leave you. I just got a head start. I know you're fast, right? I know you're really fast. And so I just needed a head start because you're going to run past me at some point, right? And she's like, just, just to make this clear, you left your pregnant wife for a cat. Like, like if I like to be eaten by a cat. And I'm like, all right, well, whatever. Well, however you see it, that's not what I did, okay? Um, so I know how I would respond. I wouldn't be the person that grabs a dog and slams it. Like, I, no, no, no. I, I would definitely be running away, okay? So those are the, those are the, the, the three categories. The, the, the first category that we see, the first place that fear comes from is the, the first category is spiritual fears. The second category is relational fears. And then obviously the third category it's, is situational fears, okay? So as we try to understand our struggle with fear, 
we've, we've answered what it is. We've answered where it comes from. And the last question I want to ask and answer before we jump into our second and final point is I want to I ask, why, how do we respond? How do we normally deal with our fear? Because the response is everyone, the reality is everyone has a response to fear. But the question is, is the, is, is the response biblical or is it sinful? And what I want to do is I want to give you four ways in which we respond to fear, and none of those ways are biblical, okay? And I wouldn't say, let me say, that, none of those ways are effective. They're, they're ineffective at best and sinful at worst, okay? So these are the four ways that we deal with fear. None of them are from the Lord. The first way that we try to deal with fear is with logic, logic. So we try to think our way out of our fear. But here's the problem with using logic when you're struggling with fear, that most fears are illogical, right? They're illogical. So you can't think your way out of it because you didn't think your way into it. And so trying to think your way out of it won't ever work. That's the problem. Look at this quote from Dr. Ed Welsh again. This is just so interesting. He says, there are, of course, treatments for fears and anxieties. Medication dulls the physical symptoms. Psychological treatments address the thoughts. Then he says, and he gives an example. He says, if you are afraid to fly because you keep thinking the plane will crash, you can replace that thought with another. And then he says, I've flown many times before and nothing has happened. It's the safest way to travel. So that's kind of what we do, right? We replace one thought with another thought. But here's what he says. He says, this might help, but it rests on the premise that fear submits to logic which is a dubious assumption. In reality, fears are rarely logical. See, the problem with that argument is that you're making the assumption that you have a logical, you've gotten there with logic. So you could only get out of, out of it with logic if you got in it with logic. And what he's saying is, when, when we try to do that, it rests on the premise that fear submits to logic. But it's a dubious assumption. Why? Because fears are rarely logical. So maybe you have a spouse or maybe you have a child who's struggling with fear and anxiety. Have you ever tried to talk someone out of fear and anxiety? Have you ever tried to use facts? They never work. Honey, don't be afraid of this because this is true. They never work. Logic doesn't work because logic isn't what got them there. It's not logic. So logic can't be the answer because logic cannot deal with the, the, the illogical nature of our fears. Okay? So the first way we respond that doesn't work is with logic. The second way we respond to fear that never works is we spread it, is we spread it. Here's what I mean by this. Here's what some people do. Fear can be a very lonely thing, but fear, like misery, loves company. And so here's what we do. We're fearful of something, and we know it's dumb, and we know it's illogical, so instead of dealing with it biblically, we spread it to others so that we don't feel alone. So I feel dumb for fearing, so I'm going to make you fear so that I don't feel dumb for fearing. And that's why many parents who struggle with anxiety and fear raise kids who also struggle with anxiety and fear. Because all that parent has done as they've raised their kids is put fears in them and anxiety in them. And I don't want to feel abnormal, so I'm going to make fear normal and tell you that it's okay for you to fear. And so they spread it. I'm tired of carrying this burden, so I'm going to help you carry the burden with me. We spread it. Actually, in one of the books I read this week, um, what the author says, and it's so interesting, he said that all someone who worries is, a warrior, someone who worries, all someone who worries does is they are a visionary 
minus the optimism. That's what it is. Someone who fears and worries is, someone, is a visionary minus the optimism. And here's what's so interesting. People who struggle with fear and anxiety, they are incredible visionaries, incredible. So on their wedding day, instead of thinking about the wedding, they're already imagining the day when their spouse is in a casket being lowered into a hole. And they can literally, they feel the weather. They see the flowers. They know who's standing around the grave. And they see it with clarity. They're incredible visionaries. They, they get in a car, and, and, and they, or they put their kids in a car, and their kid's about to go somewhere, and they could literally imagine with clear detail the intersection where the car is a twisted mess and there's glass all over the place. They can literally see it perfectly. They are really good mission, uh, visionaries. They just don't have optimism. They look in the future, and instead of looking at it with optimism, they look at it with pessimism. That's what a visionary does. And that's what a warrior does. Here's what's interesting. In that same book, what the author says is that we have people, he, he, he talks about the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, I believe it is, Moses, he writes to the people of Israel, and he tells them, do not believe false prophets. And Moses says, one of the ways that you could tell what a false prophet is, is by seeing if their prophecies come true. And if they don't come true, don't listen to them, because they're a false prophet. And what the author says is that people who worry and people who, fear, who have anxiety issues are false prophets. You know why? Because 99% of what they think will happen never happens. So next time fear shows up, call yourself what you are. You are a false prophet who never gets it right. Be honest with yourself. I, I read a study a few years ago where they said that only 8% of what we worry about should be worried about. And the rest of it is make-believe, totally made up, or will never happen. Only 8%, I don't know how they figured it out, but they said in the study, only 8% of what you worry about should be worried about. The other 92% you shouldn't even be thinking about. Why? Because you're a false prophet and you always get it wrong. You're a false prophet and you always get it wrong. Okay? So the first way we respond to fear that just doesn't work um, is we use logic. The second way we respond to fear is we spread it, right? We're false prophets who are preaching false messages and try to get people to buy into it, right? So we logic... We try to spread it. The third one is really interesting. The third way that we can respond to fear that's totally unbiblical is we can actually avoid it and pretend like it's not there. It's the sweep it under the rug method. And the people who fall into this camp, here's what they believe, which is not even biblical, but here's what they believe. They make the assumption that now that they know Jesus, all their fears should be gone. They make the assumption that now that they know Jesus, all the things that cause fears in their life, all the issues, all the obstacles, all the enemies that cause fear are gone now, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm with Jesus now, so I should never have any struggle at all. Jesus is going to remove everything that took fear from me to get, they get put fear in me, and he's going to remove all of it. The problem is that's not the promise that the Bible makes. The Bible does not make that promise. Jesus promises that he's going to be with us. He doesn't promise that he's going to take it from us. That's why when he prays in John chapter 17, I believe, he says, I pray not that you would remove them from the world, but you would protect them from the world, right? He never promises the removal of those things. He just promises he's going to be there with you. And earlier this, this, this year, um, I, I, sometimes God's word just blows my mind. And sometimes you read through things that you've read so many times, and something just jumps out at you. And, and earlier this year, I was reading through Psalm 23. It doesn't get any more basic than Psalm 23, right? It's like the most famous psalm. 
But there was a line, there was a verse that for some reason just stood out to me, and I had never really seen it that way. And I have, I have it up here. Look what it says in Psalm 23. It says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's usually the verse we think of, right, when we think of Psalm 23. The one we don't think of is the next one, and this is the one that stood out to me. He says, listen to this, you prepare a table before, before me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table, bef- in the pre- a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So, so I got curious, and I went to go study what the word presence there means. And the, and the word presence, it literally means before the face of someone. It means within eyesight of someone, okay? Now, here's the mistake that a lot of us make. What we assume is that when we're Christians, when we, when we believe in Jesus, all our enemies are taken away. And all the things that cause us fear, cause fear are gone. I never have to deal with them again. But that's not what the Bible promises. The Bible promises that God will prepare a table and that your enemies will be right there at the table. Right? Now, here's one of the things that blew my mind. Lily and I, here's what kind of shines light on this passage. A few years ago, when Lily and I were still in college, we went to, when we were at Moody Bible, we had a chance to go to Israel, Right? And when we went to Israel, there was this thing that we went to, and it was kind of like one of those, it's like a medieval times, but for the Bible. It was like all these people acting, playing major roles of, like, there was an Abraham, and there was a Joshua. They were all there, right? And, 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 and so we went to Abraham's house, to Abraham's tent, and we had a meal with Abraham, okay? But one of the things that blew my mind when I got there is that when we think of eating with someone, we think of a normal table, right? We sit on a chair, and there's a table. But what blew my mind about this when I was looking at, when we got there, is that that's not how people ate back then. You never sat in a chair. This is how you would sit. You would either sit like this, like that, at a table that's this high, or you would sit like this. That's how you would eat, okay? Now, listen, if I'm picking a basketball team and you're sitting like this, I'm not putting you on my team, okay? Like, this is like the most, like, like less, the least threatening, most feminine way to sit I've ever seen, right? Like, it's like, right? Okay? So think about what this passage says. Think about what this passage says. What the passage says, put yourself in this passage, that when you place your faith in Jesus, Jesus prepares a table not away from your enemies, but in the presence of your enemies. This, this, I've, I've never been in a more exposed position. Like, How can you ever defend yourself from this position? And what God says so I want you to pretend that this is Satan, that's the world, and, and, and that's the flesh right there. That's the flesh. And I'm sitting at the table with them. Hey, uh, uh, flesh, can you pass the salt, please? This is, what, this is what biblical peace looks like. Listen, the reason why you and I should never fear is not because of the absence of our enemies, but because of the presence of God. We should never fear, not because of the absence of our enemies, but because of the presence of our God. You sit at the table, and you look at your enemies, and the Bible says in the presence of, and before the face, it says they, you're within eyesight, they're right there, they're breathing down your neck, and you're eating. And your peace doesn't come from the absence of your enemies, it comes from the presence of your God. Amen? Let me get back up. <laughs> right? That's why that passage blew my mind. Because I always thought, hey, I'm a Christian now, so I should never have to worry about my enemy anymore. Nowhere is that promised. 
God is so powerful that he tells your enemies to sit and eat and not touch you. That's what God does. That's where fear is overcome. Okay? So, the first way we respond to fear is we use logic. The second way we respond to fear is we spread it. The third way we respond to fear, like which I just, just mentioned, is we avoid it and assume that it's gone. And then the last way is we accept it. And many Christians are sitting here today and you have just accepted fear. You have just embraced fear. You have just said, fear is what I will have and fear is what I will do. And you live in defeat. You live like if Jesus never died. And many Christians live in defeat and walk in defeat, and it's like a soundtrack that they have playing in their, in their mind. It never turns off. It's just defeat, defeat, fear, fear, fear. But the problem with it, no matter what, we talked about how we relabel it, and no matter what you label it, at the end of the day, your, your prudence, your, your, your being careful leads to being terrified. It leads to being paranoid. And this is the, the, the last quote I'll read from you. This is from Max Lucado. And actually, real quick, um, Max Lucado, when I was at IDP, the Spanish congregation, Sergio, who's the Spanish pastor, the worship pastor, he would always say Max Lucado, Lucado. And it always sounded so much better than Lucado. I'm like, Lucado? Sounds like a Telemundo star. You know what I mean? Max Lucado. Um, Anyways, here's what Max Lucado has to say. He says, the step between prudence and paranoia is short and steep. Listen to this. Prudence wears a seatbelt. Paranoia avoids cars. Prudence washes with soap. Paranoia avoids human contact. Prudence saves for old age. Paranoia hoards even trash. Prudence prepares and plans. Paranoia panics. And look at this last one. Prudence calculates the risk and takes the plunge. Paranoia never enters the water. There are Christians here who've never entered the water. There are Christians here who've never taken a step of faith because you only take steps of fear. You know, one of the things that, that, that blew my mind, I was looking at the parable of the talents the other day. And for those of you who don't know that parable, the, the, the landowner leaves and he gives five talents to one, two talents to the other, and one talent to the last guy. When he comes back, the one that had five now has 10, the one who has two now has four. And then he goes to the last one and he's like, why didn't you at least invest this? And if you miss it, if you're not reading it clearly, you'll miss it. You know what he says? He says, the reason why I didn't invest it is because I was afraid. Fear. What keeps the last tenant from using God's resources was fear. And you know what God does with him? Does he give him a pat on the back? Does he say, hey, no, no problem, we'll get it next time? God calls him a wicked servant and gives the talent to the guy that had ten. My prayer for you is that we will not get to a place where we'll stand before Jesus and that's what we're here because we, out of fear, there were things we didn't do or places we didn't go or people we didn't talk to. Don't be the third tenant, okay? So hopefully by now, we can all understand that we have a problem, right? If you go back to my two points, hopefully by now I have sufficiently convinced you that, they, that we have a struggle of fear. There is a struggle. And every single person in here, to one degree or another, struggles with fear. So now that we understand there's a struggle, what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to talk to you about the solution. What is the solution for our fear? And to do that, I'm going to reread the passage. Look what it says in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear 
has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, according to the Bible in general, and this passage in particular, there are two solutions to our problem with fear. There are two solutions. One of the solutions is the fear of God, and the other solution is the love of God. Okay? So two solutions to our problem with fear. The fear of God, first one, and the love of God, the second one. So let's look at both. The first way for us to overcome our fear is with a fear of God. Now, that sounds very counterintuitive, right? Because up to this point, we have been talking about the fact that we need to avoid fear, that we need to eliminate fear. So it almost seems counterintuitive that one of the ways we overcome fear is with more fear, right? But here's why, here's why a greater fear of God is the, ultimately the way to deal with our fear. Because remember what we said, the, the fear of the world, worldly fear is, is, is terrified fear, is panicked fear, right? It's the, is, is, is the relationship between a slave and his master or a criminal and a judge, but godly fear, the fear of God, that's not the same thing. The fear of God is a respectful awe, is a reverential awe. It is the relationship not between a slave and his master, but a son and his father. So in order for us to ultimately deal with our fear, we need to overcome that fear with a greater fear. Right? Now here's the thing, and I don't want you to miss this. One of the issues that we struggle with when it comes to this concept of fear the reason why, and, and I don't, guys, please don't miss this. The reason why we struggle with fear is not because of the bigness of our situation, but because of the smallness of our Savior. Okay? So let me go ahead and say that again. The reason why we struggle with fear is not because of the bigness of our situation, but because of the smallness of our Savior. See, here's the thing. Every single one of us is a theologian. Every single morning when you get up, you ask questions, you ask and answer questions about God. So one of the questions that we ask every morning and we answer is, does God care about me? Another question is, is God in control? Another question is, is God powerful? Another question is, does God uh, 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 want me to be more like Jesus? Those are all questions that we ask and answer. So your theology on Sunday morning is not what matters. Your theology on Tuesday morning is what matters. Your theology on Thursday afternoon is what matters. And every single morning when we get up, because we are all theologians, regardless if you've been in church or not, we are all theologians and we all answer those questions in our own way. When we answer those questions, we actually create a God and that God is either the God of the Bible or it's not the God of the Bible. And so the reason why we struggle with fear is not because of the largeness of our, of our, of our problem, but it's because of the smallness of our Savior. It's because of the smallness of our God. Listen, some of you believe in such a small God that I don't blame you for God going to him. I wouldn't go to him either. But it's not the God of the Bible. So of course you're not going to go to him. Because we're all theologians and we all have views of God. And however you view God is going to determine how you view fear. It's got to be a greater fear, and the only way you're going to have a greater fear is if God is greater than your problem. Biblically, God is a problem for your problem. But we don't see God like that. So I don't blame you for not going to that God because I wouldn't go to that God either. You see, one of the things that Jesus says, Jesus says, do not fear them who can kill the body, but instead fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. So Jesus says you overcome that fear with a greater fear. Fear him more because he deserves it. He's big enough for it. 
You know, one of the, the stories that blows my mind in the Bible is when the disciples are in the boat and, 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 and they're with Jesus and they're traveling across the Sea of Galilee. And one of the things about the Sea of Galilee, the way it was built geographically, the way it was set up, because of the mountains that surrounded it, storms can just rise up suddenly out of nowhere. And that's how a lot of storms in our life are, right? You don't see them coming and all of a sudden they just show up. And the disciples, they freak out. And they go to wake Jesus up who's taking a nap in the, in the stern. And they're like, hey, do you not care about us? Do you not care that we're in trouble? Do you not care that we're about to die? Do you not care about the fact that, that we're suffering and we're fearful? And the Bible says that Jesus, he wakes up, he tells the storm, hey, 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 enough, enough, shut up, shut up, it's over. And you know what's amazing about the passage? Here's what's amazing about the passage. That at the beginning of the boat ride, they're fearful. And then at the end of the boat ride, they're still fearful. But they're not scared of the storm anymore. They're scared of their Savior because the Savior is stronger than the storm. And so it's a greater fear that overcomes the lesser fear. And so the only way we're ever going to overcome our fear is by finding a greater fear in Jesus who deserves it. Not in the problem that doesn't deserve it, but in the promise that does deserve it, in the Savior who does deserve it. That's how we overcome our fear. So the first solution to our problem with fear is a fear of God. The second solution to our problem with fear is the love of God, is the love of God. And that comes straight from the passage because he says perfect love is what drives out fear. Now, I don't want you to miss it there. The Bible, the Bible says perfect love, not marital love, not maternal love, not brotherly love, not thug love, not social media love. The only love that casts out fear is perfect love. And the only place where we can find perfect love is in Jesus. Jesus is perfect love. See, love is not a principle. Love is a person. And so the reason why a lot of us struggle with fear is because we go to love, but we settle for smaller loves. We settle for worldly loves. We settle for our spouse's love, our children's love, our boss's love. But the reality is that the only way that fear will ever be cast out is if you find that love in Jesus, the perfect love. It's perfect love. And not only is it perfect love, I want to emphasize the word perfect, but it's also perfect love. It's the word love there is also crucial. You see, because one of the mistakes that we make when we struggle with fear is we say, oh, the reason why I'm struggling with fear is because I don't, I don't have enough courage. The reason why I struggle with fear is because I'm not brave enough. The reason why I struggle with fear is because I don't have enough faith. But the Bible says that the, the opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite of fear is not bravery. The opposite of fear is not heroism. The opposite of fear is love. So the reason why you're struggling with fear is not because you're not acting like a hero. It's because you're acting like an orphan. That's your problem. That's my problem. That's why we struggle with fear. And the thing that I love about the word agape, which is the word love there, that the word agape is so different. The word love there is the one-way, unconditional love of God. And that love is not based, it's not based on earned value. It's not even based on intrinsic value. That love is based on perceived value. It's based on assigned value. So God loves you not because you've earned it, not because it's intrinsic, but God loves you because he perceives you and he assigns it to you. So not only did you do anything not to get it, and because you did nothing, you did nothing to get it, you can't do anything to lose it. And so many of us struggle with fear because we believe, oh, I'm not good enough for Jesus. Newsflash, you're not good enough for Jesus. The gospel is not that we're good enough for Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus was good enough for us. That's the gospel. It's perfect love that casts out fear. It's perfect love that casts out fear. And the word there, to cast out, it doesn't mean just to, like, move it aside. It doesn't mean just to put it in another room. It means to grab it and to throw it out of the house. It means to eliminate it. It means to totally remove it. And so when we're in the presence of perfect love, we can't be in the presence of imperfect fear. They can't coincide. Either one is there or the other one is there. That's what the Bible promises us. 
That's the gospel promise. You see, so our problem, our problem with love is not that we don't have enough courage. Our problem with fear is not that we don't have enough courage. Our problem with fear is not that we don't have enough bravery. The problem with fear is not that we have, we don't, we're not heroic enough. The problem is, is that we are acting like orphans and we have forgotten that we're already loved, already accepted, already approved of. To the degree that you understand that, to the degree that you understand that, fear is just taken away. It's totally removed. You know, one of the things that blows my mind about the word perfect in the text, the word perfect there, the reason why I think it's so important is because the word perfect there means complete, it means fullness, and it can also mean it, something being finished. You know the only other place, well, there's other places, but one of the places where that verse is, that word is used, Jesus on the cross uses the same Greek word, and when he's about to die, he says, it is finished. It is complete. It is done. And so the reason why you and I can be confident that God's love, the love of God will be completed in us is because the work of God was completed by him. That's the gospel. That's what's going to ultimately overcome your fears. To the degree that you believe in, to the degree that you lean into, to the degree that you focus on the perfect love of God, to that same degree you will overcome the imperfect love of the world. Amen? Let's pray.